I say always start small. Don't try to bite off more than you can chew. There is always something easy you can do that doesn't have to cost a lot and that will prove to you that there is value going forward with data science. Welcome to Lewagon Live. This week we have Kim Nilsson speaking to us, CEO at Pivigo. Also running Europe's largest data science program, Pivigo is a marketplace connecting data freelancers with organizations. Kim has a PhD in astrophysics and an MBA from Cranfield School of Management, as well as awards like Women in IT's Entrepreneur of the Year and one of the top 50 most influential women in IT in the UK for two years in a row. This is one not to miss. Keep listening to hear her secrets. Good evening, everyone, and I'm welcome. I'm happy to be here and hopefully share some interesting things, perhaps about uh, what I've learned over the last few years in this career. Um, my astronomy story started when I was about 13 years old and I couldn't sleep one night and I was looking out the window and I thought, I wonder why the stars twinkle at night. And so I went to my local library, I bought a book on astronomy and I was hooked and I decided I'm going to become an astronomer. And so from there, I then had a straight path through the whole education system uh, onto my PhD, got my PhD. And, and was on this path that uh, this was going to be my career for life. But I think what I realized or started to realize already during my PhD project was that there were certain parts of the work that I enjoyed more than other parts. Uh, and that was things like project management, teamwork, uh, working on organizing things. I organized a conference, um, et cetera. And the things I didn't enjoy so much were the actual science bits uh, of sitting in front of a computer and coding and doing analysis and statistics and, and writing papers uh, about those results. And so I started to feel like, hmm, maybe this isn't the right career for me. But, but I'd had that dream for so long that I just sort of kept going. And it took me another about four years after my PhD through various science positions before I finally had to admit to myself that no, I really, really don't enjoy this very much. And I think it was the beginning of, of, a, of a very difficult journey in some sense for me because I had this vague idea that there were things that I was good at, but I wasn't quite sure what sort of job I could do with those skills. I also didn't know how to write a good application, how to write a good CV, how to interview well. And I really, really struggled to to make that transition and to figure out what was going to be the next goal in my life. Um, and so, yeah, if, I guess if I continue on that, on that story and how I ended up starting my own business, um, I, I think I sort of felt that my future was going to be something in business. Um, many of my friends had gone through the same sort of difficult transition of moving from academia into an industry role. Um, they all struggled. I saw, saw them struggle. They all went into either software development roles or finance roles, typically, uh, neither of which interested me because it was exactly the two kind of things I didn't enjoy doing, coding and, and maths. Um, but I kind of had this idea that there must be something in business for me. And so in, in slight desperation, I decided to leave academia the one way I knew how, which was through academia. And uh, so I applied to go and, and do an MBA and thinking that I'll give myself some time to learn about business, figure out what I want to do. And most of all, if I've got a PhD and an MBA, surely someone will hire me. <laughs> 
So um ended up coming to the UK then uh, and did, did my MBA at Cranfield School of Management, which if you don't know it is in the middle of nowhere between sort of Milton Keynes and Bedford. Uh, had a wonderful year there um, where I learned so much and met so many incredible people and mostly also learned about myself, my preferences, what what I wanted. And there was this niggling feeling that maybe there's something in entrepreneurship for me. Um, maybe I actually want to be my own boss and be the one who's driving things forward, fixing things. As soon as I see something I think is not right, just fix it and not have to go through some hierarchy uh, to get things approved. And so I started to understand this thing about myself. And then I also met the co-founder of Pivigo, the business I run now uh, during my MBA. He was also doing an MBA at Cranfield, also trying to figure out what else to do with his life. And Jason, my co-founder, had a background in recruitment. And so we sort of started to talk about um, these challenges that I and my friends had had around making a career transition and uh, his experiences in recruitment. And that was the seed of, of Pivigo, which I'm sure we'll talk more about uh, in a minute. Um, but yes, it was that journey through the MBA that made me realize that I could, I could, I could want to do something on my own. And, and I, then that seed together with the seed of an idea for a business meant that I decided to, to take the plunge and, and start my own business. And that's now seven and a half years ago. <laughs> So would you consider yourself a, a data scientist or more, a, you know, interested in business and a businesswoman? Um, more the latter, I would mm -hmm. say, yes. Um, I haven't coded a line for seven and a half years. Um, and I think what has served me extremely well with my science background, I mean, in some sense, I'm still a scientist. So you can't really beat the scientist out of me. Um, but I think what served me very well going into the industry of data science was a very good understanding of what is what is it to write code, how difficult is it, um, and what what languages do you use, and what's the difference between one or the other, and, and similarly with everything around analytics and statistics, just having an, both an understanding of the subject matter per se, and of the people of of how scientists think. Um, combining that within the education I've had around business means that I can be a bridge between the, the world of science and the world of business. And I think that is something that, uh, that is very valuable to many organizations. Mm -hmm. So you founded um, Pivigo in 2013, if I'm correct. Um, yes. So how did uh, Pivigo start? And could you tell us a little bit more about that? But it was it was funny. It was about probably about two or three weeks into our MBA at Cranfield, we had a careers workshop where we were supposed to start to think already then about what careers we wanted, and um, we were split into smaller groups. and And I sat down at this table next to this guy, and at some point they say, "Okay, now turn to the person next to you and and do this exercise together." And that was Jason. Um, and so I'd never met him before, but we started talking and I heard about his background in recruitment. He heard about my background in academia and not, not so much happened that day, but, but I, I remembered, I remembered the guy. <laughs> and then a few months later, when we were starting our entrepreneurship elective, which part of that was to write a business plan for a new venture, this idea came back again around, well, 
what we, we what we know is we have incredible talent in our universities. We have people who have great skills, great motivation to join a new career, great soft skills like communication and presentation and teamwork, and they really struggle to find a job. And then on the other hand, we have this industry, all these companies saying we can't find enough analytical talent. So there's a mismatch. So 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 I knew there was a problem there, and I thought maybe. Maybe there's something to be done to try to bridge that. And I remember this guy that I talked to in that careers workshop. So I went up to him and I said, what do you think about doing something in this space? And he, he said, yeah, sure, there might be something there. And, uh, and we decided to work together for that elective on a business plan related to connecting the world of academia with, with business and, and wrote the first business plan for what ultimately became became Pivigo. And even the name is actually a funny story. The name Pivigo, uh, we were in finance class in, in, the, in the MBA and our finance, finance teacher was talking about an acronym PVGO, um, which in finance is present value of growth opportunities. It's a term related to how you determine the share price for a company, but she pronounced it in class Pivigo. And it, it just stuck in my head. I thought it sounded so funny. And uh, when it came to, to then thinking about a name for a company, I thought, well, we're going to be working with all these people who we think have great growth opportunities. And it sounds a bit funny and it's, it's unique and, it, and it's got to go at the end. And so, yes, we decided to, uh, to pick that as our name. I love it. I love it. So do you want to tell um, the public a bit more about what Pivigo does then? What we do, yes, of course, mm -hmm. of course. Um, so Pivigo, um, and it has evolved a lot, I must say, from those uh, seven and a half years ago, from that business plan we wrote in the MBA. But ultimately, we're about connecting companies that have data science challenges. So everything we do today is about data science. It's the niche that we work in. We connect companies that have data science challenges, projects, problems that they want to work on or have solved with a community of data scientists who are interested in, in working on those problems. And the way we do that is two ways. So we have um, what we call our marketplace, where we basically match up these project opportunities to freelancing data scientists uh, who are interested in working on projects. So it's all about sort of project-based engagements where we match up companies to data scientists. And the other way we do it is through uh, our Science to Data Science or SQDS program, which is a training program. It's a boot camp also for, for data scientists. And, and in that program, which is a five-week program, we bring together typically academics, PhDs and MSCs who, who already have a solid founding in analytical skills, but who maybe lack commercial experience. Um, we bring them together with, again, companies that have live opportunities and they work together for five weeks and and it's this really great way for um for the data scientists to get a bit of experience and something they can use to find the first job and for the companies of course a great way to get a small project done and meet some great people that they might want to hire into their company so that's the two ways that we work with uh, we work in between the companies and uh, the, the wider data science community very interesting. And so what is your role as the CEO of Pivigo? And I guess, what's your typical day? Oh, there, there is no typical day. Um, 
and what is not my role. Um, it's funny when you when you start a company and, and we started with two people, me and Jason, and you do everything, absolutely everything yourself, from cleaning the floors through marketing and sales and and then calling data scientists up and talking to them and everything. Um, and then, of course, as you grow, you start to uh, hand things over and delegate more to other people. Um, and then you still sort of keep a finger in every pie as a CEO. I guess my, my sort of main responsibilities, everything commercial, working with our clients and understanding their needs and how we can how we can meet those needs, um, how we can bring revenue into the business, um, everything to do with money. So fundraising and working, talking to our investors and, and keeping them happy is on my desk. Um, some duties around the training program, uh, of course, I have to, I have to, I want to be involved in that. Quite a lot of outwards facing uh, events such as this or, or other events where we present our work uh, to the greater community. Um, and yeah, everything in between that, working with the team, making sure that our team are happy and, and are productive. Um, a typical day is a lot of emails, I suppose, um, on, on all of these topics, a lot of emails, a lot of internal meetings with the team, making sure that everyone has what they need and, and, and ask them if there's anything else we can do to support them. Um, and, uh, and then hopefully, yeah, at the end of the day, getting a few other tasks off the list <laughs> that need to be done. So you, you've been named a rising star among the top 100 influencers of big data. What's your experience been as a woman in tech, I guess, and also a female entrepreneur? Um, yes, yeah, so I was surprised to see more more obvious, more more apparent discrimination in business than I was in, in science, actually. Um, maybe I was lucky going through academia, but I actually very rarely felt any form of discrimination in, in science. Um, but coming into business, it became a lot more apparent. And um, maybe if I give a, a few examples, I mean, we all know the statistics of female tech companies get 4% of VC funding and, and these sort of statistics about, you know, 15% of data scientists are women or so on. So we know the statistics, we know that the, the situation is not perfect, is not great. Um, but maybe to just put some, some flavor on that um, through some of my own stories. Um, I, I, for example, quite early on felt the difference if I dressed in, in a dress for an event, or if I would go in more a, a pantsuit or, or, or more uh, just trousers and a shirt. Um, I actually felt that people took me more seriously if I dressed slightly more male um, than, than very typically female. Um, and so I think I, I adjusted that way. I uh, don't know whether it was quite unconsciously or not, but, but I did. Um, and maybe tone down femininity a bit. Um, I've also had very clear situations where investors, for example, have, have turned me down because, because of prejudice. Um, one investor specifically, I remember this, this occasion where we were at a mixer event between investors and startups, and, and I was obviously invited as the founder of a startup that was raising money at the time. 
Um, I was talking to Jack Tang, who's the founder of Urban Massage, and both of us were approached by a VC, who I won't name, um, and the VC was only interested in talking to Jack. He wouldn't turn towards me, he didn't ask me anything, basically just totally ignored me. At the end of, the, at the end of the, that, the, that chat, he gave his business card to Jack, and I sort of said, well, I wouldn't mind having one too, please. Uh, and he kind of sort of, sort of hmm, threw me one and then left. And um, following up with an email afterwards, I, I asked for a meeting to, to present my business to him. And he wrote a rather uh, short message back saying, oh, I don't think... I don't think I've got time for you because I only deal with businesses that have more than one million pound turnover. At the time, we had more than that. <laughs> but he hadn't even bothered to ask me anything about my business or to find out whether we were actually, in principle, hitting the criteria he was interested. He just assumed that we were not. And uh, anyway, uh, long story short, I did end up meeting with him because I did tell him that we did follow, tick his criteria. Um, it was a rather awkward meeting, and uh, of course, even if he at that point had said he would be interested in funding me, I wouldn't have taken it because I knew his attitude. Um, but those very, very obvious moments, also going into a room together with Jason and everyone assumes he's the boss and that I'm sort of the, the sidekick. Um, yeah, many of those occasions have surprised me because I didn't really expect it, and I thought we'd gotten further than we had today. I just maybe just very briefly, there is a counter to this, and I feel like there is a very strong movement also to support, especially female entrepreneurs and female founders. And I have now luckily been clued into a lot of those networks. And so there is a lot of support to, to be found as well for, um, and, and I'm sure there is similar for other types of groups of, of individuals as well. Um, but but you have to find it uh, and you need that support for when times are, when you experience those sort of things that afterwards you go, oh my God, I can't believe they did that. <laughs> so what, what are some of the networks that you're part of? Um, well, there's, um, there's something called Silicon Valley Comes to UK. Now that's, they're about to change name, I heard. <laughs> so I don't know how long, much longer they'll be known by that. It was started by Sherry Kutu and uh, from the Scale Up Institute, um, together with Reid Hoffman from LinkedIn. And it was about connecting the UK and the US ecosystems together, tech ecosystems. And they especially have annually a, uh, a trade mission uh, for female founders to go from the UK to the US, to Silicon Valley, to experience what it's like there. And I was very lucky to be chosen for one of those a few years back now and it was an incredible experience um huge learning curve to see what it's like over there and to come back and think oh my god i need to change my whole business um but also then realizing that well no but I'm, i shall be inspired from what i saw over there and that that has a big network around it that, that you then become part of um and most, to be honest, most of the other networks are quite informal. Um, you just sort of meet someone who says, hey, we've got a WhatsApp group. Do you want to join it? Um, and, 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 and so it takes a bit of time, unfortunately, and, and to find these pockets of, of goodness. Um, but it's out there. It is out there. And so what would your advice be, your kind of few tips on, 
you know, for someone who's starting a company or, go, or wants to start a company in the future? You just do it. <laughs> just go for it. I, I mean, I, I think um, when I stood there graduating from my MBA and the choice, I, I had a job offer um, to start oh, with a company. It was something I wasn't super excited about, um, but I had a job offer for a regular job. But I also had this opportunity to, to try, try to start a business with Jason. And I, I guess I thought to myself, if I, if I don't try, I will wonder for the rest of my life what would have happened if I'd done it. And so I basically, I set myself some targets. I said, six months, we have to do revenue or I'm going to, we're going to pull the plug. We agreed to that, both Jason and I, we agreed what the sort of pull the plug criteria was. And then I also worked with my husband to figure out, can we afford me not having a salary for six months? And yes, we could. And he was very kind and supportive uh, on that side mm -hmm. and really was urging me to you know, go and try it. And, um, and so we did. And I think, I think it's, you have to, if you feel the itch, you have to try it. You, you just have to, you have to give it a go and try to limit the risk as much as you can, as much as you can. And even if it fails, you will have learned an awful lot uh in in trying to do it and you've grown you will grow so much as a person so just do it look for the support networks network as much as you can uh, both for getting finding clients and finding other support um because you can't do it on your own and, and just keep learning keep staying staying open-minded and listening to everything you you hear and and choose what to what to listen to and, and what to maybe disregard <laughs> It is true that a lot, a lot of people don't start a company because they are scared, right? So fear is the one one thing that stops people. Yes. So I guess you've worked with a lot of um, companies that are, you know, trying to improve their data strategy um, and helping them in that. And so what would be your best advice for those companies as well who are trying to improve their, their data science side of things? Mm, mm. Yeah, so, so through Pivigo, so we've, we've delivered about 230 data science projects now to, I guess, about 140 clients in every sector and every size and every industry you can imagine. And I think what when it comes to starting out fresh, there's a couple of key things. For example, I say always start small. Don't try to, to bite off more than you can chew. There is always something simple easy you can do that doesn't have to cost a lot and that will prove to you that there is value uh, going forward with data science so so that would probably be my number one advice start small uh, number two would be around um, knowing what your question is so what is it you really want to get out of, of data science what 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 is it that keeps you up at night that you think maybe I can solve that with data and I think a lot of companies rush into this data science thing because they think they have to do it, but they haven't really thought about what problem am I trying to solve. So make sure that it's a question that's really, really relevant and important to the business. But, but, and then see how we can start small with that. So, so start small, know what your question is, and uh, and know that the commitment is there. It needs to have a commitment from every level in the organization, certainly from the higher levels, um, because there's a reason why data science is called sci a science. Um, I think that's a really good word because 
it is research and development. It, it is about setting a hypothesis and testing it. And sometimes the hypothesis is wrong. And it turns out that, hmm, well, that project didn't quite go where we wanted it to. Some projects will fail, um, but other projects will be really, really successful. And even the ones that do fail, you, you'll find some insight from it. You'll get something out of it. And so I, I think those are probably the three key the three key key tips is start small, know what question you're trying to solve, and then make sure that the expectations are set right and that there is a commitment to keep trying, keep working on it, even if the first project is not the game changer that you expected it to be. Very interesting. And so also, I guess, um, what would you, I mean, how have you seen data science evolve over the years? And because obviously you started quite a while back, so you've seen the change um, in the last few years. And how how do you see it evolve in the future? Well, yeah, we've, we've been riding the hype cycle <laughs> for a few years now. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, when, when we started seven and a half years ago, it wasn't unknown. There was already many companies talking about it at the time. And I probably expected that by now we would have gotten a little bit Further, that it would be a bit more mainstream to be doing data science than it is. Um, instead, I think what we saw was there was we started out talking about data science, and then everyone started talking about AI, and everything was AI, and there was a super hype. Everything was artificial intelligence. At the time, we actually chose not to rebrand ourselves as AI because, in our view, AI is only a small part of what data science is. Data science is much bigger. Um, so we stuck with data science, and now it feels like the AI hype cycle is is coming down. Many companies have been disappointed that it hasn't quite delivered what they expected. So again, expectations were probably not quite right. Um, but on the other hand, what we're seeing now is that it is becoming more sort of institutionalized. Um, most big companies by now will have a data science team, and they will be doing something. Um, and now what we're seeing is probably more the smaller companies or, or the, the less technologically mature companies that are coming around and saying, well, now we want to do something. Um, how COVID will affect all of this is a good question as well, because um, in some ways it will be very helpful. I mean, obviously COVID is a horrible disease and, and, and we don't want to say that it's a good thing, but the transition that we've seen to both remote working and more digitalization as part of of, of lockdown um, is quite, probably quite positive um, for for our industry. More companies are moving to cloud simply now because they have to do it. They don't have a choice anymore. They can't have servers in house. Um, so so that will help sort of set the scene for data scientists. And the remote working also means that we can access talent from anywhere in the world, which I think will be very beneficial for, for our industry as well. So where do we go from here? I think uh, as with your typical hype cycle, we have had the peak. We're probably a little bit in the top of disillusionment now, if you think about the Gartner hype cycle. But the good thing is that when you come out of that, actually you reach maturity and it starts to become something that everyone's more comfortable with and the expectations are better aligned with what it can actually deliver. So that's, that's what I'm hoping for is that it will be a bit more commonplace going forward. 
So you would recommend any company to start looking into data science and use it to grow and better perform, right? I, I think every company should think about it. Now, the very, very first question I always ask in a company when I'm talking to them is about, about their data itself. So how much of it do you have? What type of data is it? What sort of complexity does it have? How clean is it? How accessible is it? All of those questions. Because simply put, if, the, if you don't have data, there isn't that much we can do. Um, you can always try to gather open data or external data, but it's, it's, it's always going to be challenging to make that very valuable to an organization. Um, however, even in, that, even in that situation, even if you start with nothing, you should still think about, well, what is the data that two years from now I could use to, to be valuable for me? How do I collect it in the right way? And what do I collect and, and what is the value of it? Um, so it's important to think about that from the start. And then once you have the data, absolutely, there is so much low-hanging fruit that you can start to work with and really immediately deliver value into an organization, whether it's raising your prices and, or getting more revenue or being more efficient so that your costs go down or or making your customers more happy, organization more productive. There are so many ways that, that data can help an organization be more successful. And what, you know, when you're working with, a com with different companies, what would your success rate be, I guess? Yeah, well, <laughs> how, do you define, how, do you, how do you define success? Um, it's, a, it's a tricky one. Um, we worked with some big organization where... I'm not joking when I'm saying that what we what we do can have a sort of seven or eight figure or even more benefit um, to that company. And then other cases, you, as I said, you just have a team that ends up being a little bit more efficient, and therefore you also your 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 team happiness goes up because they don't have to do maybe really drudgery tasks anymore, and and it's a lot harder to to say well. Was that a success or not? Um, I think the fact that uh, something like two thirds of our clients come back to us and, and ask for a second, a third, or fourth project is probably a sign that that they're happy with what we do. And um, and we've got some great case studies as well where companies have gone on record and actually said this was this was how much money it made us. <laughs> um, but it's it's really really hard to say, I, I, and it's extremely rare that we have a client that afterwards goes, you know what, that was not worth it. That was a waste. That is extremely rare, even when it's not multi-million pound revenue increases or cost savings. They still learned something. There was still something valuable that came out of it. And on the other side, I guess, with more your students, your data science students, um, how would you recommend people do for kind of starting in a company, trying to find a job within data science, really? Yeah, yeah. So when we this, so this is interesting. This side of the equation has changed a lot in the mm -hmm. seven and a half years of our company. When... When we started the company, so me with my um, academic background, I started to go out to universities to present about career options and specifically data science. And I remember those first year or two um, when I would ask them, what, what careers do you think you could have? They would come up with 
a plethora of different types of careers, but but very, very rarely did anyone say data science. And then when I said, well, hey, there's this career over here where you can do same sort of job that you're doing now, but anywhere in the world in any type of company for higher pay. <laughs> and they would go like, oh my God, why didn't I hear about this before? Um, that has changed. Um, now, if you go out, most of them will say that data science is actually their dream career. And, and so I think that's a good thing that more people are aware of what options they have. Um, what to do? Um, I mean, so I guess there's, there's two, two parts to it. There's the technical skills, making sure that you have the technical skills you need. And very, very roughly, that is coding skills. You don't have to be a software engineer, but you do have to be pretty decent at coding in typically Python or R are the two main languages for that. Um, so you have to be pretty decent in that, um, at least intermediate level, say. And then the other side of it is is the math and the statistics. And, and again, you have to be pretty decent in it. You don't have to be a statistician, um, but but you have to you have to have a good understanding of it. And then combining the two means you get machine learning. Uh, and all of these things are are super easy to learn on your own on the web through tutorials through MOOCs. Or of course through through programs like Le Wagon or, um, or or other boot camps as well. Um, so so that's that's that. Once you have that, the next thing really to get that job offer is to demonstrate that you haven't just done a course; you have applied your skills. And this is probably where more more people struggle with with how do I do that? How do I how do I show experience without getting a job so that I have experience? The, the chicken and egg problem. Uh, and the easiest way to do that, if if you don't want to go through a boot camp like STDS, um, is typically just to do your own projects in 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 your home office. Um, there are plenty, plenty of data sets out there in the web that you can download. Just come up with your own little project, something you're interested in, find some data, analyze it, put it together into a presentation of some sort, publish your code on GitHub, publish your visualization or whatever it is um, on, uh, on a website somewhere in a blog. And then you put that on your CV. And that way you show two things. You show that you can apply your skills to a real problem. And you actually at the same time show your motivation and your creativity. It shows really that you're the one who goes above and beyond to to really prove yourself and um, and to to learn as well, and those are very very important characteristics. Getting a job is not just about technical skills; it's also about the whole personality and showing that you have the right characteristics that a company will be looking for. Thank you, thank you very much for that. Um, I think we've got a few questions. In which sector or industry would you say that you know there's been the highest demand for data science and you know data science projects? So I think if I if I look at within companies, I, I think I'd rather I'd rather I'd rather mention a department, typical department within a company. Um, because what I see across companies is that it's typically the marketing function within those companies that's gotten the furthest. So they will already have been collecting um, 
web analytics for their website. They they do so probably do social media uh, campaigns where they get analytics back from that. They are always tracking their marketing spend and trying to figure out if I put one pound through this advertising channel, do I get two pounds back or more? Um, and and for them, it's a, also very very obvious if if there is a success that okay, well now I got two pound twenty back instead of two pounds. I immediately see get that feedback that what I did was good. And so even though I know from academic perspective, it's not always the dream job to work within marketing and advertising. Um, that's where there's a lot of data science jobs available because that's where companies typically start. So that's probably more function rather than a sector. Um, but I suppose otherwise, if we look at if we look at sectors, then everything that is closer to um, consumers and um, and online is typically uh, further ahead. So I guess the, the intersection of all of that is e-commerce um, companies that sell things online to direct to consumers, um, so B two C companies. Um, and it's also because they simply collect more data. Typically, if you're a consumer-facing company, you will have more clients, and therefore you will have more data than if you are a business um, business-facing company. Do you, do you find that companies haven't then implemented a data science team within, let's say, marketing, um, or that they're they're still outsourcing their data science people? Well, so this is. Um, I think that's that's very mixed in what companies do. Uh, bigger companies will have teams, or they even have multiple teams. They could have a team within marketing and a team within operations and team within finance or whatever. I don't know. Um, so, so they might even have multiple teams. I think I heard that a, that a, a typical London bank would have forty data science teams uh, within within them. So. Um, but 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 for typically for smaller companies where maybe it doesn't make sense to hire a big team, it's it's more outsourced. And this is where I also hope a little bit for the future that this part of the industry will grow because over the last few years, companies have very strongly felt that we need to hire in-house so that these people stay with us and their knowledge stays with us. Problem is they don't stay. <laughs> Um, because, you know, three years down the line, Google comes and offers them three times the salary they have. And that's hard to resist <laughs> for most people. Um, and so, so they don't stay, even if you do hire them. And, it, and sometimes it's been hard work trying to convince companies to, to bring in flexible people, to bring in freelancers to us, for example, um, to do that. But I, I, I see a rise in that happening. So I think that will be an exciting trend to watch. But I guess following on from that, then, you know, what is the impact of GDPR on data science and on projects? Um, you know, if it's a one-off project, for example. I think there was a little apprehension, mainly because the fines that, uh, that, that they threatened with are so large. And I guess everyone was a little bit on edge to see who was going to be the first one to be prosecuted according to that rule. And... I think quickly, quickly everyone relaxed a little bit and realized that this wasn't going to be a bloodbath. Um, 
uh, companies care and they should care. It's very important that they care about privacy and about also ethical behavior with the data that they have, not just privacy, but also should we be doing this thing, even though if we are, if we're allowed to, um, but it's, it's usually not a problem. Many, many projects can be done, uh, with anonymized data to start with, or it's using data that isn't personal at all. Um, and it's at least from what we've done, what we've worked with, it's been relatively rare that it's been sensitive private data, but even then there are ways to protect that data and, and make sure that nothing bad happens to it. Um, so it, it hasn't been a big hamper, I have to say. And I guess for someone moving on from that, um, for someone starting, wanting to start a company, would you say that it's essential that they have kind of skills and have gotten skills in the work industry before, so worked for another company? Um, or can do you think that they can start fresh out of uni, for example, um, out of their studies, out of being in edu- education? Absolutely. Well, I mean, when I started... When I started Pivigo, I had been a scientist and that was it. And, and sure, I got an MBA, but, but that was classroom learning. Um, what you have to have is you have to have the drive. You have to have the motivation, the ambition. You have to, you have to want to put in really, really hard work because it is hard work. <laughs> it's really, really hard work. And I don't know, I don't think anyone would do this job if it wasn't for the fact that, that you have that itch that you just, I, I, I tend to say that entrepreneurship is, is a calling. If, if you feel that itch, if you feel it, that you have it in you, you have to do it. Um, but I wouldn't recommend it as a career for anyone else uh, because it's just hard work. <laughs> um, very rewarding at times, but, um, but, but I think it's also important, as I mentioned earlier, that you stay very open and curious and wanting to learn. You have to grow every day. You have to throw yourself into something new and try it out and you learn from it and you grow and then it gets easier. And then there's the next thing to try yourself and throw yourself into and try that. And, and so, but, but it just, it just needs those sort of attributes. It doesn't need a particular skill Um, or, or rather if you have those attributes, you can learn all the skills that you need as you go along. So you didn't think you were at a disadvantage compared to people who had, worked in business for example worked in finance well I, th- I actually think the greatest disadvantage that I had was that I did not have a network and so I knew no one uh, I didn't know potential clients I didn't know potential service providers like accountants lawyers uh, I didn't I, I just I didn't know potential advisors to the business and what I did though that that mitigated that over time was that I just networked ruthlessly. Every night I tried to find a free event to go to and I just went there and talked to as many people as I could and then asked them who they could introduce me to. And even though it doesn't immediately pay off over time, that network becomes invaluable um, because that's where you meet your clients. That's where you meet um, people who can help you. And that's where you get in touch with these other networks. So, so it's really, really important to do that. It's also funny that when I first went out to pitch for funding from investors, which was actually only about three and a half years into the business, we, we started making money from the start and, and, and we initially survived on that. But when I went out to fundraise, a lot of investors said, well, I'll only invest because Jason, my co-founder, had a background in entrepreneurship. 
um, because otherwise they wouldn't found uh, uh, fund uh, first time founders as I was. And I thought, that's stupid. I mean, come on, I can do it just as well as anyone else can. Now, in hindsight, I understand a little bit because you try so many things and eight out of 10 things fail, but then you learn that and you know, okay, that didn't work or or I have to do it a bit differently next time. And now I know that when I start my next business, which I'm sure will happen sooner or later, because I have the itch, I have the calling, um, I know that I will do things differently and and hopefully I'll be a little bit more quickly successful than, than with this business. And so I get that. But at the same time, of course, I feel you have to start somewhere. So uh, I am grateful that they funded me. And uh, if I ever have money to spend <laughs> to invest in other companies, I really want to make sure I invest in, in first-time founders as well because it's an investment for the future of all of society. And so if you could start your entrepreneurial journey again, what would you have done differently? <laughs> oh, so many things, so many things. <laughs> I, I think, um, I mean, there's little practical things like I don't think, I think I underestimated the importance and then the challenge around hiring your team. Um, I, I, your team can make or break you. And you have to you have to get the right people. And I think ultimately, with most of most of those early hires, I was actually a bit lucky that they were good. Um, but then, other times I was not so lucky, um, and and those were were bad times for business. And I, and I also then underestimated how difficult it is. I guess I, I guess I kind of cockily thought that I can meet these people and I can tell if they're good people or not. Um, <laughs> But it turns out that actually we're, we are all probably slightly worse at judging people than, uh, than we think we are. Um, and and this is, doing a bad hire is, is not bad just for the company. It's bad for that person as well because they'll be wasting time and then they'll be out looking for a new job again. And, and it just, it, it's better for everyone that, that, that you, you don't make bad hires. Um, so hiring and emphasizing the importance of hiring and, and putting enough energy and thought into that would probably be a key thing. And and then the other thing about fundraising is that probably if if I raise again, and that is a big if, I don't think I think I felt like I had to in the first in this business, um, because because it was the kind of like, well, if you're gonna be a tech entrepreneur, you have to raise money. Um, I think I would think twice, like, do I really need the money next time? And if I do need the money, I'm going to raise more money <laughs> because I didn't raise enough money. And then, you know, within six months, you're out raising money again. And it's just, it's just a big drain on the business when the CEO is constantly fundraising. So, um, yeah, it's probably a few things. Yeah. And ha- what would be your kind of recommendations on choosing your co-founder and how to, how to go about that? I think what what Jason and I did, and which has meant that our our relationship has lasted seven and a half years and, and beyond, is that we 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 knew we were on the same wavelength when it comes to to just values and what kind of business we wanted to build. We agreed on things like we want to be transparent, we want to be open, we want to be collaborative, we want to be professional, we want to under promise and over deliver. I mean, all of these sort of values um, that we we just 
we knew we were on the same wavelength. And then we never end up in any sort of conflict around any other decision sort of stems from those values that you have. And, and as long as you're aligned on that, then you will not have difficult conflicts later on. So, so that was really important, I think, that, that we knew we would agree when it came down to, to those important decisions. Um, and then I think we just very, what, what worked very well with me and Jason is just that we like to do different things. And so he takes care of all the things I hate to do and, and vice versa. So we have a good working relationship that way, that we complement each other. And, um, and together we make one sort of very, very good, strong founder uh, with all the qualities that you would want from a founder. So it, it really helps have a founder. I think being a sole founder would be tough <laughs> with all the hard work that's there. I mean, Jason's always, yeah, he's, he's like a brother to me. I can always lean on him. When things are tough, we lean on each other and, and support each other. Thanks for listening to Lewagon Live. Tune in next week for another episode. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe by hitting the subscribe button. 